Let's pray together. Father, um, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You have not just spoken to us, but you've given us a book which tells us about you, which tells us how we get back home, which makes sense of all the brokenness in our world. Father, I, I feel the weight of your word today. I feel um, feeble under it. Um, I need your help. So won't you come? Lord, we know that when Jesus spoke, he said, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear, which is, which is sobering. There's a way to hear and not hear. And so we need your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear this morning. Father, I pray if I say anything untrue or unhelpful that you would allow it to fall on deaf ears and that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see Jesus as glorious, to see the vastness of divine love that is not indifferent to evil and will destroy everything that destroys ultimately. Help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we continue on in our new series, which we entitled The Bold Letters from the Blood Brothers. We're going through Jude and James in turn. Uh, those were Jesus' literal half-brothers. And today we see where this title comes from. Jude uses some very bold, some might even say abrasive, offensive language today. And as we're, if we're honest, this is a, this is a difficult text. It's okay to say that, you know. It's okay to say this is a hard hearing. This is one of the reasons why at Prism, our primary practice on Sunday mornings is to go through books of the Bible. It's so we can't hide. Because um, if I'm honest, if I was just whimsically picking a text to preach on, I would probably not gravitate towards this one today. But we desire to come face to face with the full counsel of God's word, knowing that there is freedom in the fresh wind of his voice in every page. And we also know that God, like a good surgeon, sometimes needs to cut to bring about the deepest healing. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says that one of its jobs is to open our hearts and lay us bare before the one to whom we must give an account. That's what it says about itself. And so we shouldn't be surprised if there's times that it's not comfortable because life is serious. Sin is serious. God is not indifferent to it. And that's where we're at today. As we'll recall, Jude is specifically writing to the church to admonish them to contend for the faith against some who have come into the church once again and started to distort the central tenets of the gospel. And this brings us to what are called open-handed and close-handed issues in the church. In the church, there are issues that are open-handed and close-handed. Open-handed issues are things like worship style or baptism style. For instance, two of our elders are credo-baptists, two are pedo-baptists. Um, it has things to do with how the gifts manifest. These are things that we can have healthy and honest conversations about under God's word. 
and then even land on different places on and still walk shoulder to shoulder in church as sisters and brothers in Christ. These are open-handed issues. Paul spoke of some of these things. For instance, in Romans, he was addressing how are we to interact with the Sabbath now on this side of Christ? Sabbath was a massive notion for the Jews. Well, do we just disregard Sabbath now? Um, Paul said this to the church. One person now esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He's not saying it's unimportant. He's saying we can land in different places, and as long as your your conscience under God's word is guiding you, that's okay. That's okay. There are some things that that's okay about. Then there are close-handed issues. These are what I would call the load-bearing pillars of the faith, which we cannot remove without the entire structure being compromised. These are things like the deity and exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the authority of God's word and the reality of man's fallen nature, and the content of the gospel itself, namely the physical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable, non-negotiable. And this is how the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, spoke of a closed-handed issue like this. In Galatians, he says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's a decidedly different tone here about an open-handed issue and a closed-handed issue. And it is this variety of thing that Jude is dealing with, namely close-handed. The reason I bring this up is so we understand why Jude employs such intense language. Remember, Jude initially said that he just wanted to write to them to talk about the glories of their common salvation. He said, I was indeed eager to write to you to talk about this, but I found it necessary to exhort you to contend for the faith. Why is this? Because as we see in our text today, what is at stake is quite literally eternal life and eternal death. And this is a word directly to us today in Pasadena, California in 2016, because this is not a popular notion. So Jude would say for it to us, you need to decide right now. Will you contend for the faith or will you listen to other voices? So we'll be in Jude verses 5 through 7. If you have your Bibles or if you have it on your app, you can turn to there. Now it's this really tiny book. It's one chapter. It's the second to last right before Revelation. We'll spend the most of our time in verse 5, but I want you to see that this is not my word. This is God's word. Verse 5 says, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Here, Judas calling the beloved, those in Christ, to remember something that they already knew. What specifically he wants them to remember, we'll get to that in a second, but what I want us to consider here for a moment is the importance of remembering. The importance of remembering. Our biggest need is not new information, usually. Our biggest need is to remember, to believe again the truth that our whole life hinges on. 
And this poses a very unique challenge for us in this technological age because it has created in us a ravenous appetite for new information, for constant information. Uh, One study I read this week said that on average, um, people check their phones, their smartphones, uh, 85 times a day. And uh, what was interesting about that study is that that was double the amount that the people within the study guessed that they did. And so it is, it is a compulsion that we now have. Our, our phones are like fire hydrants, just constantly spewing information at us. Now, information is not bad, but it can muddle our minds. And yet it is exasperated in our day. People have always had this tendency to drift, to want to hear something novel, want to hear something new, to leave the solid ground of truth towards the siren's call of novelty. You remember the sirens from Greek mythology. They were these beautiful creatures that would sing enchanting songs to sailors as they went by. And so sailors would steer their course away following the siren call, and it led to their destruction. It led to jagged rocks that would shipwreck them and their crew. So here Jude doesn't have something new to tell us, but he is trying to break the siren song of seemingly novel thoughts about God. A God who doesn't judge. A Christ who has nothing really to forgive. And that's why he is about to use such jarring imagery. He knows that bold words are needed to rouse distracted ears. He's trying to cut through the siren song and awaken us to both the beauty and the urgency of Christ's offer of salvation. And his words are just as relevant to us as they were 2,000 years ago, because we have always, as a species, been prone to forget. And so part of the New Testament writers often pepper this, this call to remember. In Romans 15, Paul says something very similar. On some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God. In Second Peter, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. God knows that we can become inoculated to the gospel. We've heard it so much that we want something new. And that is tragic. And so that's why Jude follows with a bold reminder. uh, reminder. So now we've looked at the call to remember, but what's the substance of his reminder? Well, in verse 5, he gives us two things. The first thing, remember that Jesus saves. Verse 5 again. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Jude is writing to a Jewish audience here, and so he starts referencing stories that would elicit massive responses in their mind. Here he calls back to the Exodus. Now, for a Jewish person, the exodus was the symbol of salvation. And so he wants to, as strongly as he can, get his readers to understand the gravity of what is at stake. They must contend for the gospel because, like the exodus was salvation, now the gospel is salvation. And it's through this alone that men can be saved. But you'll probably notice Jude does something really fascinating here. He doesn't just say that God generically uh, saved a people out of the land of Egypt. 
which is true, but rather he says, Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. And this, this is massive. Jude gives us the Rosetta Stone through which we can understand the entirety of Scripture. Jude is saying, yeah, God saved, but it was actually Jesus because Jesus is ultimately the Savior of everybody. It's amazing. The Bible is not primarily a book of morals or primarily of history book. It's a book of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And this is what Jude is saying to this Jewish audience. Jesus saved your people out of the land of Egypt. And Jesus himself taught us this. Uh, A few hours after his resurrection, we get this amazing story in Luke 24. There are these two guys on what's called the road to Emmaus. And they are talking with each other, and they're very sad and and downcast um, because of the events of the weekend. The, uh, the crucifixion, um, and they had thought that this guy would actually be the one to save Israel. And so they were expectant that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was killed. And so their hopes were killed with it. And then Jesus comes alongside of them and says this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That is the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then catch this. This is amazing. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jude is just agreeing with what Jesus has already said. It's all about me. There's no page that I don't haunt in the entirety of Scripture. The Bible is a story of God's salvation through Jesus Christ, reconciling back to himself all things. So Jude is hearkening back to the Exodus and is trying to stir the hearts of his hearers by reminding them that Jesus saves. Only Jesus. But the second thing he wants them to remember is this. He says, Jesus destroys. Remember that Jesus destroys. And admittedly, this is not the Jesus that our culture or even the church likes to think about, and understandably so. After all, isn't, isn't Jesus the, the embodiment of love? What's, what's all this destruction language then? How does that work? I have no category for a Jesus who could destroy. So an inevitable question That everyone must wrestle with, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're an old believer, whether you're a new believer, is this. How is it ever loving for Jesus to destroy? This is tough. And some have completely rejected Christ because they found the idea of a God that judges unconscionable, unpalatable. It offenses our sense of propriety. And so I have no space for that. I want you to know if you're here this morning and that's you, you are welcome. You are totally welcome to wrestle here, to ask the hardest questions you can conceive of. We believe Jesus is the truth. And so we should fear no question at all. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is the best explanation of reality. Believing what explains reality And we believe Christianity does that far and away better than any worldview. It is not a blind faith. So, I want to spend a few moments looking at this question. And first, we need to remember, when we come to harder issues in Scripture, 
we need to realize we can't address them in isolation. We can't just abstract a hard verse and look at it as if it's not part of this entire canvas of redemption. You can think of it like a beautiful Rembrandt. And a lot of Rembrandt's paintings have contrast and have dark spots. And if it was three inches in front of your face and you were just honed in on the darkest spot, you would say, how is this beautiful? And that'd be a good question. And from that position, it doesn't look beautiful. But when you step back and see the entire canvas afresh, you realize that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And if the dark spots were gone, it wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't be something beautiful. And so that's what I want us to do. Take a step back, look at the entire canvas of the story. We must remember, friends, that before anything was ever created, God, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, existed eternally in a life of perfect love and community. God then made us, not because he needs us, but rather it was an overflow of the well and spring of his eternal love. He created us as those who would bear his image and would participate now in his life of love. And so we were created in a world of perfect peace and love. This is what the Jews call a place of shalom, perfect peace. It's a rich concept. Then something terrible happened. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, began to doubt God's goodness and ultimately rebelled against him. And this instant, this relationship of perfect love was shattered because we grew rebel hearts. And in that moment, sin started to creep in and seep in into all of creation. And we see its effects everywhere. We see it in cancer. We see it in depression. We see it in terror attacks that are so ubiquitous now that we're not shocked when we see one on the front news because we hear about them all the time. Even last month on Easter in Pakistan, there were some families gathered to celebrate uh, Easter at a playground. And a suicide bomber came and blew himself up and killed about 70 people, mostly women and children. Just an act of utter violence indiscriminately. And we need to realize that this is what humanity does to each other. And it is a serious thing. And God hates it. He hates what sin has done because of how much love he has. Now give me your minds, if for no other place in this sermon, for this one next sentence, because this is huge. This has shaped the way I see God's judgment like nothing else has before. In order to grasp the biblical teaching of judgment, we must understand this. The greater someone's capacity is to love, the greater their capacity is to hate what harms the beloved. The greater someone's capacity is to love, the greater is their capacity to hate what harms the beloved. It would not be okay if a husband was indifferent to his wife being assaulted. His capacity to love directly is tied to his capacity to hate what harms the beloved. And so it is with God, if he himself is our highest good, which he is, he must hate anything that diminishes his glory and does harm to what is right and good. Because of his capacity for love, he has a capacity to hate what harms the things he loves. And this is where the story, this is where the canvas becomes more amazing than we could have ever dreamed. 
God refused to remain indifferent to the brokenness and evil in this world, which has ravaged his creation and his glory. And God is on a mission of restoring all things back to himself through Christ. We are headed back to a state of shalom. And so God is now meeting out and getting rid of all the sin and all the unrighteousness so that we can dwell with him forever. This is the picture we get in Revelation 21. A few verses from there say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that is Christ, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is what God in his love has done for us. The problem is, we are the unclean, but that's why he sent Christ. That's why we need to be in the Lamb's book of life, because it's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. This is his love displayed. His love is not sentimental or shallow. We have, I have, small views of what God's love is. And a thousand lesser problems can be done away with if we get a biblical vision of God's love for us, the seriousness of God's love. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says this concerning God's love. He likes to use big fancy words, but bear with it. I think it is immensely helpful. He says, you asked for a loving God. Well, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world's. This is the divine love. It is a consuming fire. It is a love that when it erupted, creation was manifest. And this brings us back to our tough text today. In love, Jesus does save. And it is a free offer to all. He bids all come to me. But for all who reject Christ, they will be found naked with no righteousness of their own when God's holy and refining fire comes to make things new. And they will be destroyed, the text says. But friends, we must realize that God does not delight in this. He bids us come and turn to Christ. We see this in both the Old and New Testament, God's heart. And this is hugely important. Ezekiel 18. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Am I not pleased when they turn from what's going to death and turn to life? Second Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards them, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance means to turn around, and God is saying, you are headed towards death. I want you to turn around, and if you don't, you will perish. That's why the gospel is good news. And this is God's heart. And the reality that this world is still spinning, despite all the evil and all the rebellion, is evidence to God's patience, his love. 
He is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he is waiting for his son to receive all that he purchased on the cross. So, how is it ever loving for Jesus to destroy? It's a hard question. It might help if we think of it like this. Because God is in the midst of recreating a perfect shalom, ultimately Jesus must destroy everything that destroys. Ultimately, he must destroy everything that destroys. In the remainder of our text today, Jude reinforces this first example by giving what can be seen as a tale of two tragedies. This occurred outside of the nation of Israel, and it showcases the terrible consequences of refusing to turn towards God, of rebelling against his good design, and it is a picture of anti-shalom. Anti-shalom. It's verses 6 through 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These are hard words. First, we must ask, what is going on here with the story of these angels? Well, Jude is actually referring to a story in what's called the, Apo- uh, the Apocrypha. Uh, the, the Apocrypha is not scripture, but it's Jewish history that was written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and his readers would have been very familiar with this story. So he's trying to evoke a strong image of what rebellion ultimately leads to. And so he borrows this story, and I don't have space to go into every detail, but uh, it'll be a theme throughout the rest of the book, and we'll get into it more there. And then he moves to the story from the angels to the most famous and graphic display of God's judgment in the Old Testament against rampant immorality, namely the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he gives us a picture of what this final judgment, this separation from God, looks like for all who reject Christ. This is what the Bible calls hell. There are four things that the Bible tells us about hell, and the first one is this. It says that it's real. It says that it's real. God is not indifferent to evil, to suffering, to injustice. He is a holy God. He is righteous. And the fact that we, in the deepest part of our bones, hate injustice... We hate it when evil men get away with things. And we're sinners. How much more would a holy and righteous God be just? He would not be good if he was not just. I realize this is not a popular notion. You can make a lot of money writing books that say it's not true. But I have to tell you the truth. Hebrews 13 says, I will stand to give an account for how seriously I took God's word when I spoke to you, and I will always tell you the truth. Hell is real. Hell is real. The second thing scripture says is, in it will be the devil, his angels, and all who reject Christ. Jude shows us in the tale of these two tragedies that both fallen angels and rebellious humans will be banished to hell, but he actually got this teaching from Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, we get a picture of the final judgment, and Jesus has come back down as the king of all creation. And he says this, 
And the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. But after God created humanity and humans rebelled, if you do not turn from what leads to death, you will go into the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, which leads us to the third thing Scripture says. It is eternal and conscious separation from God. The text couldn't be clearer. I have to tell you the truth. In speaking of hell, in two verses, Jude uses the language of eternal twice. He uses language of gloomy darkness, of, of fire. And this, of course, is, is, is partly symbolic. We can't conceive of fire and darkness coexisting But here's the point the Bible means to convey with all of its language concerning hell. It is separation from God, who alone is the source of all love, of all goodness, of all light, of all beauty, of all glory. And so to be separated from God is the greatest horror imaginable. And that's why he bids us come. And that's why thanks be to God, this is not the final word of what the Bible says about hell. This is so important, friends. The final and decisive word on hell is this. Jesus has already absorbed it for all who will believe. Jesus has already absorbed it for all who believe. That's the reason Jesus came, was to stand in our place to save us. Hebrews 2 gives us an amazing picture of what Christ accomplished. It says, since the children, which is us, friends, this is us, have flesh and blood, he, which is Christ, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. This is why Christ came, to break the power of fear and shame in your life. All of us have it. Nobody can stand before God and live. And so God came, Christ came to break that power. It doesn't matter what you have done. There is no way you could outrun the grace of God, but you have to turn towards Christ and receive his free gift. Some say Jesus came to be our example. That's not true. He definitely is our example, but if that is the ultimate view you have of the Son of God, you have a very low view of Christ. He didn't come to be our example, primarily. Jesus Christ came to be death's destroyer. Jesus did not come primarily to be our example, as though we were just slightly imperfect and he needed to help us out. He came to be death's destroyer, to break the power of death and to turn us back to God, who has open arms welcoming all who would receive the grace of his Son. That is why Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Only Christ could make this claim because only Christ destroyed death. That's good news. Jesus Christ destroyed death, and he's ushering in a recreation of all things where we will dwell with God forever in eternity. This is a biblical picture of love, friends. And 1 John says it beautifully. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved 
us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the substitute, to absorb the wrath for our sins. God's love is not shallow. It is not sentimental. He sent his son to bear our wrath so that we could dwell with him forever. Have you received the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? When God comes to make all things new, will you be well-dressed in the cloak of Christ? It is a free offer. And I wonder, friends, have you told those in your life who need to hear about this, the good news? Second Corinthians says God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation on his behalf, to herald the good news of forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, I thank you that your love is so much vaster than we could ever dream. That your love is like a burning galaxy of glory and goodness. Open our hearts to see it, Lord. We struggle to see it. Open our minds to take serious the reality of the brokenness in our world so that we can understand why you had to go to such great lengths to save it. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts afresh, that if there is any in here who have not been wrapped up in the precious cloak of Christ's grace, that today that would happen. And Father, I pray that you would give us a burden, give us an urgency to share the good news with those who need to hear it, so that they too may be cloaked with Christ. In his name we pray.